it would be great if you could have your Bibles open at page 834 as we begin to study uh, further Colossians 12, uh, th- sorry, chapter 3, 12 to 17. Uh, and before we do that, why don't we just pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with our Bibles open in front of us, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Give us understanding, Lord, and quiet and patient hearts, Lord, ready to hear you speak to us this evening through your spirit. Amen. Uh, before I start, can I just thank um, Brian, actually, as well. Uh, last week, I was meant to, to do the sermon last week, um, but uh, I had a rough weekend in, in bed most of the weekend, so uh, Brian very uh, very helpfully pulled me out of a hole uh, on Sunday afternoon, so thank you very much for that. Um, but it's been great to study Colossians together, uh, and we're nearly uh, nearly into the fourth chapter, nearly into the to the end of the book. Uh, but I wonder, uh, as we begin to study Colossians this evening, and I wonder if you've ever thought about this. When you look at the, the church around us, have you ever thought this? How is it that all of those people from such a multitude of different backgrounds and cultures and experiences, how on earth are they ever to know or to understand how to get along with each other? Surely, you know, if you were to take such a, a widespread mix of people and, and to put them into any other community situation other than church, you would probably be asking for disaster, wouldn't you? And while, you know, at times it may seem that things that happen in church can sometimes be a bit disastrous, for the most part, this community that we call church seems to work. Now, over the last sort of couple of weeks, what Paul has been doing for us. He's been laying a foundation, and it's a foundation of, of solid theology. And it's theology that is, that is summarized in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. Let's remind ourselves of those quickly. Look down at them. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's a theology that Paul lays out for us, but he doesn't just leave it there. He shows us the practical implications of this theology. And it's the verses that follow uh, that, that really speak to us. That's Paul's pattern throughout his teaching, that he, he states a truth and then he applies the truth. Doesn't just leave the big theological thoughts up there. And last week we seen how we are to put to death the things of our old life. That painful but necessary process of cutting away all of the things that take our focus from the heavenly things and place them in the things of this world. And now the focus shifts from the negatives of taking away to the positives of putting on. Paul shows the Colossians and, uh, and the Colossian church. You know, now that you've turned away from your old ways, from your old life, instead look to these new ways and this new life. And Paul doesn't just stop there because he then shows them how this new life, new life that they have in Christ, it begins to flow out and it begins to impact relationships around them. Beginning with what we're looking at tonight is the relationships that we meet in church. (coughs) Now, as we turn to our passage this evening, Paul wants us to hear some words to begin with. And they're words that if we were to truly understand them, if we were to truly grasp them, 
They will have an immense effect and completely change our lives. And this is the first point that Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know who we are. Know who you are. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Who are you? Do you ever, do you, I mean, like, do we really know who we are? That is, a, that is a question that is constantly asked by this world around us. Identity is such a big talking point in our society. And for many, identity may be a bit of a fluid thing. It can change from season to season. You know, my identity today may not be the same identity that I will adopt down the line. For many, though, the topic of identity brings a barrage of confusions. Of confusion, sorry. A lot of people, they just simply just don't know who they are. And they're still trying to figure out to this day their own identity. And the lack of identity or a, or a confusion about who we are, it can bring a whole range of problems. There isn't just the, the, the personal turmoil that we face when we don't know who we are, but there's also the dysfunction that is caused to the relationships around us. You see, if I don't know who I am, and I don't know that, I've, that I'm truly loved, then I don't know how to behave. If I'm not sure that I'm, that I'm loved or not, then I'll be desperate to try and win the affection of others. Desperate to try and behave in a way that makes me feel loved. If I'm unsure about what my identity is, then I'm more likely to act one way with some people and, and completely different with others. This sort of chameleon uh, image that we put on, desperate to fit in, you know, until there's about 20 different versions of David Armstrong, none of them are the real me. A lack of understanding of our identity and a lack of understanding about if we are loved or, or not, it can completely destroy our relationships. But Paul here in verse 12, he wants the church in Colossae, and by extension, he wants us to have full confidence in our identity and also that we are loved. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And having this confidence in who we are as God's chosen people, and, and having the confidence that we're dearly loved by him, this has a dramatic effect on our relationships. If I know that I am God's chosen person, then no matter what the situation I find myself in, I will know how to behave as someone who is chosen by him. If I know that I'm dearly loved, then, it w then I won't be desperate to seek the love and approval elsewhere, doing things that I shouldn't do to get others to love me. I know that I'm loved. Paul says, knowing who you are is the foundation that our lives, our ethics, and our relationships with others should be built upon. How we get on in church with one another, it's all governed by the knowledge that we are God's chosen holy and dearly loved people. We respond to that truth in our lives. We don't seek to put on this new self that we're going to see in a minute because we want to become chosen or we want to become loved by him. No, Paul says, that's who you are. You are chosen. You are loved by him. Therefore, put on a new self and think about how you get on with others, with one another. Be who you are. In the previous verses that Brian took us through last week, Paul tells us to take off the things of this world. 
He tells us to take them off because they are the things that hold us back from being who we are. But Paul instead, uh, instead says, remember who you are. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved by him. Friends, do we really know who we are? As we sit here, do we know what it is to be his people? Do we know what that means for our lives? Well, let's have a look at at these points a little bit closer. What does it actually mean for us? Firstly, we are God's chosen people. What does that mean? Well, quite simply, it means that God has chosen us, doesn't it? It means that he's picked you and me. I wonder if you remember back to your, your days in PE, you know, when maybe you're out playing football or netball or whatever the sport is that week, uh, and it comes to the dreaded moment where the captains would go down the line and they'd, they, they, they'd pick one by one who they wanted in their team. I absolutely hated that every week because I knew every single week, no matter what the sport was, I was getting picked last continually. But I remember this guy in my class, he was called Michael. And Michael was an absolute giant of a man. Over, he was honestly over about six foot by the age of 14. This guy had a serious growth spurt. And for most times, he was a fairly kind of middle of the road pick. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't particularly great at football. He was okay at rugby. But when it came to basketball, my word, he was first choice every single time. And we might be tempted to think that sometimes that is how God chooses people to be his followers. That he picks the ones who would be the best fit. The ones who potentially have the most to offer for him. But that's not how it is at all. Because the Bible reminds us constantly that we are God's chosen people, not because of our worthiness, but in spite of our unworthiness. That actually God choosing us, thankfully, has nothing to do with how much we deserve to be chosen. Instead, God has chosen us even before there was good and evil in us. God's choice in you has nothing to do with anything that is in you, but it has everything to do with what is in him, his love for us, his heart for us. It's not ours. That's why it is so special to know that we are chosen by him. And you see, here's the great thing about this. God's choice in us, it cannot be broken by who we are. If God was to choose us based on what we are like, you know, for example, if he chose us because we're kind and we're gentle people, well, what happens when we wake up on the wrong side of the bed one morning? What happens when we miss our coffee and we go into work miserable and short-tempered with everybody? That would mean his reason for choosing us is broken. That we fail to him, that we have no more use for him. That's not what God does. His choice in us has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with him. That's what it means to be chosen. Next, Paul says that we are holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, put simply, it means that we're set apart. For Israel in the Old Testament, making something holy meant that it was consecrated or it was set apart for the worship of God alone. Sometimes that involved prayers, it involved anointing with oils. But once something was made holy, it was set aside to be used exclusively for the worship of God. And if something was consecrated, if something, sorry, wasn't consecrated or set apart, then it was not fit to be used for the worship of God. And in the same way, Paul says that us as Christians, you have been made holy. We have been set apart 
for a specific task in the worship of God. We've been made appropriate. We've been made acceptable before him. And what is it that we've been set apart to do? Well, firstly, we've been set apart as a sign of his grace. We are set apart to show the world just how good God is because of how he has rescued and saved us. Look at how good our God is because he saved even such and such like David Armstrong or anybody else. We are to be a trophy, not to us, but to him and to his grace. And we've also been set apart for him to be used by him, used by him in his mission, his mission to make Christ known in the world. See, to God, each and every one of us as Christians, we are holy, worthy of being set apart for his glory. And lastly, Paul tells us that we are dearly loved. God loves us. All this is only possible because of his love for us. And just think about that for a second. Think about the Christian gospel and what it teaches us. That the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who would ultimately judge all things, has a deep, personal, heartfelt concern for each one of us. It's madness, isn't it? The bigness of who God is, and yet his personal heart and love for each and every one of us. Many worldviews and other religions, these two things, just they just don't go together. Some may understand the idea of a covenant or an agreement between us and God, but saying that he loves us personally, well, that just shrinks God down way too small. Love is certainly what you will not read about in the Quran or the love of God for his people. And yet, it is the very centerpiece of Christianity. God loves his people. We are his treasure. And friends, if we are to ever fully realize what it is to love each other, we have to start with knowing that we are loved by him. That is our foundation. That is who we are. Chosen, holy, and loved. Before we move on from this point, I want us to see that these three words, they carry also a massive theological weight to them as well. You see, chosen, holy, and loved, these are words that are often frequently used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. Turn in your Bibles there, if you will, to, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, and let's just see for a minute how God talks about his special people, Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, I think it's on page 131 of your few Bible. This is what he says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Do you see that? Israel is the Lord's holy people. They are chosen for him from all of the other people in the world. They're chosen to be what? They're chosen to be his treasured possession. In other words, they're chosen to be loved by him. Why is this? Let's read on in chapter, in, in verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath. He swore to his ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Is this starting to sound a little bit familiar from what we've been reading in Colossians? 
Paul wants us to see that just as, as Israel were God's chosen, holy, and loved people, the church of Christ today is now too a continuation of that same covenant people, chosen, holy, and loved. The Christian church today is the true Israel, if you are. And in a sense, we are Israelites. But how is this possible? Well, chosen, holy, and loved are regularly used to describe Israel, but they're also words that are frequently used to describe our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about Jesus as being the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus, chosen by God. John chapter 6, Simon Peter makes this great declaration to Jesus. He says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. And finally, remember the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration, a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father. What does he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ, you know, chosen, holy, and loved. The ultimate chosen, holy, and loved. And Paul says that for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, let's go back to Colossians 3, verse 3. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When the Father looks upon us, he sees his Son, he sees Jesus He sees us as chosen, holy, and loved. Not because of who we are, but because of who we are in Christ. We are chosen because he is chosen. We are holy because he is holy. We are loved because he is loved. Friends, isn't that amazing to think? That is who we are. That's our identity. Paul says, know your identity. Chosen, holy and loved. And because of who you are, what we need to do is our second point. We need to put on the right clothes. Let's look at verse 12 again. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, last week, Brian used the illustration of the the Welsh rugby team and how even, you know, as they were losing to Ireland last week, yes, get in there, uh, you know, even as as they were losing, the last thing that they would have ever done would be to take off that red kit and swap it for a green one. And why would they not have done that? Because that's not who they are. That doesn't represent who they are. Their Their kit... Well, it reflects who they are and who they belong to. And Paul wants us to see that what we wear matters a great deal because it shows who we are and who we belong to. Another illustration, when, uh, when, when Cristiano Ronaldo, when he signed for, for Juventus a, uh, a year or two ago, he didn't just turn up to the first match wearing his old Real Madrid kit, did he? No, he signed for his new club, Juventus. He became a player for Juventus. He had to take off the old kit And put on the new colours. The new colours that showed that he belonged to his new team. The old kit is put away. The new kit is put on. And now that we who are in Christ. 
we know who we are in Christ. Our lives are hidden in him. We are wholly chosen and loved. We need to put on the kit that shows off who we are. And in verse 5 to 11, that we looked at last week, Paul focuses on the negative, taking off the old clothes. And now his focus switches to the positive as we clothe ourselves in these new garments. Garments of the highest quality, the most beautiful garments imaginable. But notice how they contrast with Paul's instructions to the Colossians in verse 5. Uh, in verse 5, they're to take off the sins of sensualization. Uh, firstly, if you look back with me at verse 5 there, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Five sins we have here that speak directly to our hearts and to the evil desires of our hearts. Paul says, put them to death. And instead, here's what we are to clothe ourselves with instead. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Out with the old, in with the new. These are the new garments that as followers of Christ, we are to put on. They relate directly towards our heart and our heart attitudes. And all these garments, all these attributes that we see that we are to put on, we also can see that they're perfectly displayed and modeled and worn in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as those who belong to him, these garments must be put on by us too. The first garment that we're to put on is compassion. As Christians, we are to have hearts that, is, that are deeply concerned for those around us. We are to be troubled by the sufferings, injustices, the pains, the anguish of those that we see in our world. All too often, in our, in our modern age of technology, of information overload, it's very easy to become desensitized to the pain that others face. How often do we take up our, our phones just for a quick flick around and we flick through the latest news and we completely breeze over all the war, the famine, the poverty that's happening on BBC News uh, and we don't even give it a second thought. <coughs> and that's just the physical needs that we see. Do we have compassion for people when it comes to their greatest need? Matthew 9 and indeed Mark uh, 6 that we were looking at this morning reminds us that when Christ walked the earth, he had compassion for his people. Why did he have compassion for his people? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do we share this compassion for the lost? Paul says, firstly, clothe yourselves with compassion. Secondly, clothe yourselves with kindness. Now, this is something that does not come naturally to all of us at all. Often we are we're kind of looking for a way to, to one-up others or get the better of someone or, you know, even just to find that perfect put-down. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, he once wrote a letter to Winston Churchill uh, and, and he stated this in, the, in his letter. Please find enclosed two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Please bring a friend if you have one. Churchill replied, I apologize I am unable to attend this evening. As I have a prior engagement, please send me tickets to the second night of your play, if you have one. See, we're, at times we are prone to meanness at times, aren't we? Even if we don't realize that we're doing it at all. It's a habit that lies not that far below the surface of us and is common throughout our society. We're led to believe that we live in a, in a dog-eat-dog world, that is every man for themselves, and that showing kindness is to show weakness. But Paul says, no, be known for your kindness. 
Don't be harsh with each other. But be kind in your speech to one another. It is a beautiful garment to put on. And it's instantly recognizable when we see people who are kind that we that don't even know they're being kind. Plenty of us here this evening who are just naturally kind. Paul says, put on kindness. Next, Paul says, clothe yourselves in humility. Did you know that in the, in the classical Greek language, there is, there is no word for the word humility? The Greeks saw it as a, as a ludicrous act to lower yourself and embarrass yourself by being humble. Uh, and in fact, many would say that humility is a virtue that was created by Christianity. Why is that? Because we follow the example of Christ who perfectly humbled himself. Not in a ridiculous, cringeworthy way, but in a manner that's seen him give up his birthright to lower himself for the sake of those that he loved, for you and me, humbled himself to death upon a cross. Christians are called to be humble as Christ is humble. And Christian humility has, has two elements to it. <coughs> Firstly, there is a divine element. And this divine element of humility, it recognizes that God is the creator and that we are the created thing. Uh, we are created by him uh, and we are created and made for his glory. That we are totally dependent and we are totally reliant on him to sustain us. That's the first mark of our humility. And the second uh, mark of our humility is the human side of it. Uh, it recognizes that we are all, each and every one of us, sons and daughters of God. That there is... Uh, that, that each of us belong to the same family tree. That there is no room for arrogance when we are living amongst brothers and sisters. Are we at times too quick to, to think more of ourselves and less of others? Uh, even our fellow believers? We'll clothe ourselves with humility. And the last two garments that we are to clothe ourselves in, uh, their, their gentleness and their patience. Uh, and really these two garments... They're an outworking out of humility and kindness. N.T. Wright uh, puts it like this. Gentleness is the effect of meek humility on one's approach to other people, whereas patience is the effect of the humble kindness on one's reaction to other people. The first forswears rudeness or arrogance, and the second resentment or anger. And in other words, what, what Wright is trying to say here. Uh, is that we should be self-controlled in how we react to others, that we should resist the urge to fly off the handle with one another, that instead we should take a step back, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, and be patient and gentle in how we interact with one another, and to treat others really how we would like to be treated. That's our five garments that we are to clothe ourselves with as our new selves, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Five attributes that speak directly to our heart attitude. But Paul doesn't stop there. As with his previous instructions to put off the things of this world, Paul focus, uh, Paul's focus here moves from our heart attitude to our relational outworking with one another. In other words, how we speak and interact with one another. And as we are to put to death what he says, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips, so we also to put on and to bear with one another. We are also to forgive one another, putting into practice some of these attributes that we've just clothed ourselves with. So that we are to bear with one another. The word used for patience in verse 12 means to be big hearted. And sometimes we are reminded that we need to imply a big heart attitude 
to get along with certain people in church at times, isn't it? Isn't that right? You know, before the days of the, the smoking ban in public, it was very, very common for, for folks to, to light a few cigarettes up, you know, when they're on long-haul flights or whatever. And in one instance, uh, a, a man, uh, just, about the, uh, just as the flight was about to take off, he took out a big, massive cigar and began to light it up. And the stewardess of the plane noticed that the, the woman sitting next to him seemed a bit annoyed by this. So she asked the, this woman, do you object to his smoking? The woman replied, I absolutely detest cigars. So the stewardess, she walked through the plane and she eventually found a man further up the, the aisle that didn't mind the smell of cigars. He was fine with it. So she invited the other man to come up and to change seats to the front of the plane to sit with him. And as she did that, the woman leaned over to the stewardess uh, and she confided in her and she said, I've been married to that man for 30 years and I've always hated his cigars. <laughs> Does that remind us a little bit of what it can be like to live with other Christians at times? Have you heard this one? To live above with the saints that we love. Oh, what, what glory. But to live below with the saints we know. Well, that's a different story. At times, putting up with one another is hard. The church should be the place where people are put up with more than anywhere else in the world. If we are putting on these five garments, then we will bear with one another. Why? Because not one of us is the finished article. One day we will be, but not yet. We are all being made into beautiful masterpieces, beautiful works of art as we live with one another. So we must be ready to put up with a little bit of flack every once in a while, to bear with one another. And from that bearing with one another flows the next piece that, that, that Paul tells us, to forgive each other. Paul says, forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The church, more than anywhere else, needs to show the readiness to forgive at all times. Forgiveness has never been a popular thing to do. It's never been a fashionable thing to do in our world. Forgiving one another, though, it's a commandment. But it's a commandment that's made possible through Christ. We can forgive only because we know what it is to be forgiven. And if we're struggling to forgive our brothers and sisters, then we need to look back at the place where forgiveness became reality for us. We need to look back at the cross. When Jesus cried out to his Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It is an absolute tragedy when true Christians can't forgive one another. They can't put their differences aside and move on. It's a tragedy because the awful thing is that what we're really saying is that, yeah, Christ has forgiven you, but I can't. Or even worse still, we're telling our brothers and sisters that we don't deserve forgiveness. Folks, forgiving one another, it's not something that we should consider to do when it is convenient for us, when it suits us, when it's easy. But we should strive to do it at all times, just as Christ has forgiven us. And finally, as we look at the garment that we put on, Paul says that they're all held together. They're all held in place by one. They're all held together by love. Look at verse 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
Now, we've just had Valentine's Day there. Helen's definitely had Valentine's Day. She's running around with chocolates. Uh, you know, International Day of Love uh, and buying absolute tat. Uh, but Paul here, he isn't calling for a cringe fill, uh, you know, dozen roses and a mixtape type of love here. What he is saying is as Christians, we are to have a deep, meaningful, family-oriented love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. A love that holds our compassion, our kindness, our humility, our gentleness, our patience together. A love that spurs us on to bearing with one another, spurs us on to forgiving one another. A love that shows who we are as we put on this new kit, this new garments of our new life in Christ. Above all else, it is love for one another that we are to set our hearts upon. Because while it may be possible for us to have maybe one or two of the other garments without really putting on love, it is impossible not to be clothed with all of the other garments if we first put on love for one another. It holds everything together. Again, Ronaldo, when he gets ready for a match uh, with Juventus, he has to resist the urge to put on his old kit, to, to resist the urge you know, to, to, to side with his old team. And instead, he has to consciously put on his new kit, his new Juventus colors. And, and you can maybe imagine that if he's playing against his old teammates, that there's maybe a t- temptation to go back and to remember the old times and how great they were, go back to what is familiar, to what he used to know. And I wonder as Christians, listening to Paul's list here of garments, are you thinking, you know, I struggle to put on compassion at times. I find it really hard to be kind to that certain person. I need help sometimes to put up with people. I struggle and I, I, I eternally struggle to put those parts of the kit on that I know I should put on, but I just struggle to do it, especially when my old self, my old ways, they look so appealing sometimes. How is it that we go about doing that? How do we learn to put on our new garments and to love one another? Well, that's what Paul addresses in the last section of this passage. Let's look at it very, very briefly and very quickly. Paul wants us to see that we are to live together in the name of the Lord. How does Paul answer the question of how we we live our new lives in Christ and how that relates to how we live our lives together? Well, the answer to the question of living together is to live together. Let's turn to verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. As we live together in the body of Christ in his church, Paul wants us to allow the peace of Christ to govern the way that we interact with one another. The Christian life is not about living by a set of rules, but it's about living for a ruler. A ruler whose rule happens to be peace. Through his death on the cross, Christ welcomes us all into this great peace, a peace that John chapter 14 tells us is not as this world gives you, but is instead a peace that only Jesus can give you. As Christians, this peace, this assurance of who we are, this is to rule in our hearts. And when it comes to living together in the body of Christ, the peace of Christ uh, is to to be, as what Douglas Moo says, it's to be our decisive factor in settling disputes amongst believers. Conflicts, 
sometimes they're inevitable in church life. Disagreements are inevitable, but the way that we resolve them is by the same thing that unites us, by letting the peace of Christ be the ruling factor in our hearts. The thing that unites us is the same that keeps us going together. And not only that, we are to always be thankful for the peace that we share. Never stop praising him and welcoming for welcoming us into that peace. Paul goes on in verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We are to firstly let God's word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ dwell in us richly. The gospel that Paul has been reminding the church in Colossae in the first two chapters of his book, the same message of Christ that tells us that we're hidden in him and will one day be raised with him in glory. That same message, we are to love it and cherish it dearly. And how do we do that? How do we love the Bible more? Will we spend more time in it? Constantly coming back to the message of Christ. And not only that, we are to teach and admonish one another in it with wisdom, with all wisdom. Notice that this is not just a job that is saved for a certain few people or a certain few Christians that have a fancy collar around their neck. But all Christians are to be involved. They're called to be involved in the teaching of Scripture. If we love his word, if we love one another, then it should be our desire as Christians living in community with one another to see each other grow in wisdom. And at times... When that's appropriate and when it's done lovingly, admonish or rebuke one another according to Scripture. And as we put the, the word at the center of our Christian community, we are to join together in the act of communal singing. See the, the psalms and the, the hymns and the songs of the Spirit. Because when we do that, we're not just singing empty words, but we're singing truth. Truth that is meant to build one another up for good. Singing as one voice with gratitude for what he has done for us. And lastly, verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. No matter what we do, whether it's things in this church, whether it's things in our work, whether it's how we socialize with our friends, our family, we are to do all in the name of the Lord, seeking to bring honor and praise and glory to him. Because remember, we are hidden, our lives are hidden in him. Let me summarize what Paul is, is saying in these last couple of verses. Uh, and it's this, putting Christ at the center of all that we do as a community of believers. If we do that, it ensures that as we grow closer to him, we grow closer to one another. Imagine a bike wheel, you know, with the spokes on it, they're furthest apart at the outside, and they come into the hub, and they're, they're joined together at the hub. You know, if Christ is the, the central hub then the closer that we grow as Christians to him, the more that we delve into his word, the more we seek to put on the garments that clothe us with him, the more we remind ourselves of who we are, the closer we grow to him, the closer, closer we grow to one another. So we keep reminding ourselves in this study that we've been doing, you know, the way in is the way on. And the more that we focus on Christ, the more dead we become to our old earthly ways the more we remind ourselves of who we are in him, the easier it becomes to put on the new kit, to put on the new garments and to live together in a community of believers full of his peace. So as we close, I just want to leave you with a few questions. Do you truly know who you are? 
Do you know that you're chosen, you're loved, and you're holy? That you're in Christ? Secondly, what are the, the garments that you struggle to put on? Is it compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience? Do we struggle to bear with one another? Do we struggle to forgive one another? And lastly, is Christ at the center of who we are and everything that we do as a community of believers? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our life is now hidden in you. And Lord, we pray as we go out from this place this evening, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put on the garments that show us who we are, that we are in you, that we belong to you, Lord. Help us to live together in your peace, growing closer to you and closer to one another for the sake of him who laid down his life for us. Amen.